This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Malka Older is a writer, academic, and aid worker. She is currently a faculty associate at Arizona State University School for the Future of Innovation in Society and an associate researcher at the Centre de Sociologie des Organisations and has spoken at venues such as South by Southwest, the Personal Democracy Forum, the Forward 50 Conference, and the Hamburg International Summer Festival on topics including democracy, data, narrative disorder, and speculative resistance. Her science fiction political thriller, Infomocracy, was named one of the best books of 2016 by Kirkus Books and the Washington Post. She's also the author of the sequels, Null States in 2017, and State Tectonics 2018, a trilogy named for the Hugo Award. She has written opinion pieces for The New York Times, The Nation, Foreign Policy, and NBC Think. She has more than a decade of experience in humanitarian aid and development, ranging from field-level experience as a head of office in Darfur to supporting global programs and agency-wide strategy. In between, she has designed and implemented economic development initiatives in post-disaster context, supervised large and diverse portfolio as director of programs in Indonesia and responded to complex emergencies and natural disasters in Sri Lanka, Uganda, Darfur, Indonesia, Japan, and Mali in the last three as a team leader. She was named Senior Fellow for Technology and Risk at the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs for 2015. Her research interests include intergovernmental relations and crises, the paradox of well-funded disaster responses, measurement and evaluation of disaster responses, and the effects of competition among actors in humanitarian aid. Hi, Malka. Hi. So, Malka, I've heard you talk about your start of your career in disaster relief work in the wake of the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. Your work done in Sri Lanka and Uganda and then Darfur, Indonesia, and then Japan in the wake of the tsunami in 2011. And then all over the globe before going on to pursue your interest in disaster relief in the form of academia and scholarship. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that move from being on the ground, experiencing things as the kids call it in IRL, in real life. And then second, in the way that academia can sometimes approach things, which I think, unlike being on the ground, has sometimes been accused as an academic approach, and in this case, academia, serving as a euphemism for abstract or even irrelevant. For you, there seems to be a clear connection between the IRL experience and the academic experience, but sometimes there seems to be a disconnect that I've seen in the academy between an academic inquiry and practice. How does practice and scholarship work for you? And what might you see 
that other academics who might not have that on-the-ground experience might not. Conversely, what does an academic or a scholarly approach allow you that on-the-ground practitioners might not know or see? That's a great question. And I'm really happy to have both of those angles in my background. For me, it's really important because they both bring something very important. It was a hard shift to make initially because when I started my doctorate, I was still doing consulting in my program, starting, you know, the initial research work. And then I told my advisor, okay, this is kind of how I'm funding this. So I'm going to go to the Solomon Islands for two weeks to do an evaluation of a disaster risk reduction program there. And also my program and my dissertation was very qualitative. So my field work was almost ethnographic. I was talking to people, interviewing people, and that was a little bit like field work in the humanitarian sense. It wasn't quite the same. And one thing I actually struggled with a lot, particularly because my topic was about organizations and how they reconstituted themselves after collapse in the wake of a disaster, right? But of course, it touches on disaster. And so a lot of the people that I was talking to were traumatized, and that did come out in our discussions. And I I honestly struggled a lot with asking people to talk about this and taking their time and their emotional energy when all my history of talking to people after stuff like this had been in the form of trying to figure out ways to spend donors' money to help them recover from that disaster. So for me, it was one of the hardest things was to to go through all this and ask for people's time and talk to them for hours and hours and know that I had nothing really to bring to them after that other than writing something which probably just my committee would read. Actually, I think a few people have at least read the introduction now because it is online, but that was a huge shift for me. That was really hard. And I do still sometimes miss the feeling of being out on a response or even a development job where you're doing things very directly. I did find that academia was not quite as distanced from the real world as I expected it to be. One of the early things that my advisor told me was to make sure that I, instead of trying to be neutral in my language or hide my perspective, that I would be clear instead about where I was coming from. So I often, when I do an academic presentation or even sometimes in papers, I'll clarify at the beginning that I'm coming from a practitioner standpoint. And it's important because as you suggested, I do see things that are very different than what people might see if they don't come from that perspective. And I had certain expectations, I had certain normative values that came with me when I shifted to academia. It's really interesting because I think sometimes, you know, as a literary scholar, I find that what literature and what literary studies gives us is the individual story, the story that sometimes gets lost in the broader sweeping claims that are more quantitative or public policies that gloss over the individual or even forget the individual in the context of a more theoretical or quantitative metric of of looking at things. Have you found that you can intervene into those discourses more profoundly because of the experience that you've had? I don't know if I would say more profoundly. While there's value to the perspective that I bring, there's probably a value to the opposite as well. As I said, I found some parts of of it really difficult because I did have that background of certain expectations and certain experiences. And I think there's probably some value to people coming to it totally blank slate as well. And I've read some really excellent academic work on disasters done by people who went out there and embedded as academics, but had never practiced. So, you know, I don't want to say that you have to have both. If you follow me on this, in the work that I did, there was development work and there was 
disaster work. So development work is the long term, you know, poverty reduction, um, nutritional health, uh, disaster risk reduction, and then disaster responses when something happens and you go in and the pace is totally different. You're doing things really fast. You're spending a ton more money. You know, you might spend in two weeks the amount of money that would last a year in development. And it's just a totally different approach. And a lot of agencies do both. There are people who specialize in one or the other, and then there are a couple of people who flip between them. I, I did both to a certain extent. And what I found was the cultural differences were so strong that there were some people who really couldn't make the switch or really didn't want to because they really disliked the other kind of working from what they were used to. You know, there were development people who a disaster would happen in their area. And so their own agency is responding to it and they're expected to work with it. But it didn't make sense to them to work in that high speed, high high urgency, seemingly slipshod way. And, you know, conversely, I know lots of relief people who just got addicted and did not want to do development work and didn't really see the point. And they're both valuable. It was great to have people who could do both because you, you want to connect to the two. But it was also fine to have people who specialized in one or the other. And, you know, I kind of feel that way about the academic and the practitioner. It's great to have people who do both, who can cross those perspectives, but also each of them is really important in their own way. As much as my practitioner perspective brought stuff to my academics, I also really feel like the academic work has been really important in helping me both have frameworks to name and structure and generalize things that I had observed before, to gather other people's experiences and learning and provide some of that perspective. And also, you know, one of the things that happens when you're a practitioner is you rarely have the time to sit back and reflect. And, you know, I was really fortunate to be able to do that with the doctorate. I want to build on this question by adding to your complex approach that in addition to that complex, your writing has extended to the context of speculative fiction. So to really parse out the dimensions of the work that you do, on the one hand, you have a background in understanding things on the ground, locally and intimately. And then on another dimension of your work, on another hand, you have a background in understanding things through the critical distance of academic scholarship. And then on the third dimension, on the other other hand, you have a lens of approach that looks at things that could happen. That's the lens of speculative fiction, not what is necessarily happened, but what could happen. So we're dealing with three hands here, three, three extra limbs, uh, one of practice, one of scholarship, and then one of speculative and creative writing. Adding to the two dimensions that you talked about in, in your last answer, how do these three dimensions or three hands inform the others? I'm not sure I really think of them as three different hands. I feel like for my writing, I try to use all of the different kinds of experience that I have. There's a phrase that I use, which is evidence-based creativity, which is a way I try to think about being creative and really, because it's speculative fiction, really trying to get outside of the expected reality. But I want to base what I'm doing also in my experience and in the experience of others that's been observed rigorously and documented rigorously. So when I'm trying to come up with either an idea or when I'm trying to flesh out that idea by coming up with characters and incidents and objects and places and, and so on and new technologies, I need to draw from the different places that I've been and the things I've seen, but also the things that I've read about in accounts that also feel like they came from lived experience of some kind. You know, what I want to avoid is getting sucked too much into tropes that are people writing about something they've read about, which was written by someone who read about something or saw a lot of movies about it. I want to get as much as 
as possible that richness of experience. And when I'm looking for ideas, when I'm fleshing out ideas, whether it's coming from my experience of being in places, whether it's coming from some of the research that I've read that documents interesting and strange things, for me, all of that is really worthwhile and important. And then flip it around, I think that creativity and being able to push myself to think outside the stuff that has been done before is also really important for academic work so that you're not just kind of repeating the same questions and the same approaches. There's a great quote from another speculative fiction writer that I love. I was in uh, Kurt Vonnegut's archive a couple of years ago. I came across one of his letters. He has this very dear, beautiful collection of letters that he wrote to young writers. And, and he writes, if you want to write fiction, then you must be patient for you need experiences and those take time to accumulate. Unfortunately, television offers the illusion of experiences writers used to come by the hard way in courtrooms, on ships, in hospitals, whatever. Please don't rely on television unless you want to be popular. I say go for those truths, those very personal ones, not likely to be learned from TV sets. We need to know what those are, or I do. And as I was thinking about that, it made me curious as to how you tell your own story of what moved you from one dimension to the other. How would you narrate your own movement between your work on the ground, disaster relief and human aid work, to your scholarship in human rights and humanitarian work, and then to your writing in speculative fiction. As a caveat, my interest is also a little bit personal. I moved from the activist and practical realm to scholarship myself, and I've never written fiction, but as a scholar of fiction, I, I'm personally curious about how someone else who seems to have made similar moves tells that story to themselves or understands the kind of arc of their biography. If I think about my history and how I came to do these different things, actually the through line for me is writing because I always wanted to be a writer and I always read and I always wrote actually. So when I was in the field, I certainly didn't write every day, but I did write fiction. I did NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month to varying extents. And that, you know, the, the idea of wanting to be a writer, I mean, going along with that quote that you mentioned, part of my impetus was very much not just gaining experience, but also really learning about the world and seeing different places and seeing how people lived and meeting different people. And all of that was, was a part of how I was making decisions about what I wanted to do. Beyond that, the other impetus that was driving me from place to place was very much the sense of wanting to get out of my comfort zone. Part of what pushed me to do a PhD at the point that I did was that I really wasn't sure where I wanted to go next within the field that I was in. I didn't really want to go up in the organizations because that takes you away from the field. I had done field-based roles in project management. I'd done a specialist role that was based in headquarters, but traveling all over. What, there weren't too many more lateral moves to make, and I didn't really want to go up. I thought about going what's called down, you know, back to the field. But, you know, I wanted to push myself to do something that I hadn't done yet and do something different. So that was kind of what kept pushing me to do different things, to go to different places, to try different types of jobs. And then to go back to school, it had been something like eight years between my master's and when I started my doctorate to try something different and see if I could just make myself grow in that way. There's a piece of fiction of yours that I love to teach. It's a piece published in A People's Future of the United States titled Disruption and Continuity that so delicately enmeshes and weaves between the academic and the speculative and the activist. For those who haven't read it, the piece is a short story. It's a piece of speculative fiction. 
but it takes the form of the academic essay, complete with the hallmarks of academic writing, like footnotes, argumentation, evidence-based examples, and of course, abstractions. I find this piece so wonderful because in a sense, the point of the piece is to imagine new forms of telling and imagining and understanding and intellectualizing and narrating a new kind of identity and reality, which is triggered in turn by new technological innovations. And the piece focuses on a rising activist known by her handle at Zengo. That's a little at sign and Zengo as with a Twitter handle. And the story follows the collapse of the United States and this new leadership who, as you describe this character, is, and I'm quoting here, something of a bard, a foundational novelist, a folk singer of the new environment, whose stories in interaction with those of other narrators and activists will describe the boundaries of this turbulent experience, bear witness, and finally begin to function consciously and by design as templates for building something better. And then... The piece itself seems to go about and try to do exactly that, right? Try to narrate something better and imagine something better by merging genres and forms. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that piece. Maybe before we go into the piece, I don't know if I've described it as well as I could have. Maybe you could, for those who haven't read it yet, set it up with a brief summary. And then perhaps you could talk about the dynamic between scholarship, fiction, and activism that are swirling around in this piece. Sure. The piece is from an anthology that's called A People's Future of the United States. And naturally, of course, when I heard that title, it's connecting to the Howard Zinn book, A People's History of the United States. And so to think of a story for this, my first thought was to imagine what it would be like to write a chapter very much like the chapters in Zinn's book, but about the future. And that obviously has all sorts of complications. It gave me some of that voice and the idea of, of meshing in the, the academic, the footnotes. I also needed to think about what it would be like to have an academic genre of futurology, of thinking about the future in a speculative way, a bit different from the way we have futurism now. I had a lot of fun writing it. It was also really challenging because I did have to push myself to think about what better might look like and what activism might look like in a future world. It was challenging, but you know, I think that's really part of what we have to do as speculative fiction writers. You know, if I'm out here, if I'm talking about speculative resistance and I'm talking about trying to actually make my writing mean something besides being entertaining, and I think entertaining is a very high goal, but if I'm going to talk about it being something more than that, and I'm going to try to make it something more than that, then I have to go beyond observing accurately and also try to come up with new things. And I, I tried to do that in that piece. I assume by new things, one of the things you mean are new forms. And here's a question that's probably guilty of leading the witness. Do we need new forms for telling stories about the moment that we're in right now, especially with new technologies? I know that I'm leading the witness because I know that you've done something along the lines of exactly that. We have these new technologies of writing. At one point, in fact, the novel, which now we think of as kind of a standard form of fictional writing, was a new technology. But now we have these new technologies of writing that maybe change the way we think about writing, especially in fiction. I think of all the ways in which our technologies allow us to tell new stories through pictures, that's Instagram, through 140 character epigrams, that's Twitter, and I know that you've written in the Twitter form, so maybe we can talk about that specifically. We have new forms of writing that are sped up, forms of older writing, like epistolary forms, which now take the form of emails and texts, 
epistolary meaning letter writing, and there's a genre of letter writing novels. But now we have emails and text messages and Facebook messengers, which are essentially taking on and technologizing, you might say, that form. Your short story hiatus takes the form of a story composed completely through a series of tweets. It seems like these new technologies are posing new sorts of possibilities about how we tell stories and the kinds of stories we tell. What do you think? I think absolutely. And I will quibble a little bit to say that instead of saying we need new forms to talk about this moment, I think that the new forms are being generated constantly. And, you know, when I wrote the disruption and continuity piece, and then later that hiatus, which is all in Twitter form, but you know, I wrote them because I was fascinated by the storytelling that goes on on Twitter. And, you know, really enjoyed when you found someone who was spinning a thread that was a great story and you knew it and you could see sort of the people gathering around it and there's rhythm to it and different people do it very differently as well. But it's very much happening already. So, you know, I think we just we are very, very much storytelling animals. And as soon as we have new ways to communicate, we're going to be using them to tell stories. And we're going to be doing it in interesting and strange ways. And I think it doesn't need someone to try to think of it because someone is going to be out there and think of it. When I was living in Japan in the early 2000s, there was a thing called the cell phone novel. People were writing novels to be read on cell phones. And you know, now people are like, ooh, Twitter, short. And that was very much already happening then. I think it's wonderful. And yeah, as a writer, it's something that I look for and I kind of want to hopefully not take advantage of in the sense of exploit, but certainly take advantage of in the sense of, yeah, that's another option for me. That's another tool that I can use. So here's a dilemma that I constantly struggle with. Maybe you can help me out here. You know, there's a tension between wanting to claim the technologies that we have right now and the stories we tell right now as foundationally new, a rupture from the past. I think every moment likes to think of itself as exceptional and every moment likes to think of it as, in a sense, out of time or doing something new or unprecedented. So on the one hand, I say, oh, these are new forms of storytelling that are foundationally a rupture from the old. And on the other hand, I say, well, wait a second. We have Instagram stories, okay, stories told through pictures, but we've had the graphic novel for a very long time, right? We've been telling stories through pictures for for quite some time. In fact, some of the oldest stories are stories told through pictures of one form or another. Twitter might be new in its limitation on the small character count, but in fact, we've had epigrams for quite some time, right? It's, It's at least the ancient, we've had epigrams. Are these new technologies pushing us to something foundationally new or are they revitalizing something much older or is it somewhere in between? Yeah, in between or both. I tend to err just because people do want to see everything as new and exciting and different. And so I have a tendency to to err on the side of reminding people that things aren't so new. You know, I, I particularly because of the nature of my books, I end up getting asked a lot about social media in politics and the, the echo bubbles and all of these things. And so I really try to go out of my way to remind people that the technologies that we think of as kind of neutral good, like books and radio, have in fact been used to spread disinformation in really terrible and damaging ways in history. And books were once very, very much a tool of the elite. And these echo chambers are not 
knew they were perpetrated by um, newspapers and they're certainly still happening in cable news and so on. So, you know, I have a tendency to, to kind of push back against the, this is new and groundbreaking and society is either falling apart or apotheosising or whatever people decide to say about it. So, I, you know, I, I think I, I tend to go that direction. At the same time, that doesn't mean that people aren't creating when they figure out how to tell a story on Twitter. Because, yeah, we've done short before. But if you read Gretchen McCullough's book, Because Internet on the Linguistics of Internet, this is maybe the first time that we have a combination of informal and lasting and public in terms of our language. So there are things that make it different. Moreover, the people who are talking are making it their own. I wanted to ask you a series of questions about your views on speculative fiction. I've listened to a couple of interviews where you've talked about speculative fiction as an activist tool, a form of world building through imagining. This is really interesting for me to hear because, you know, as you know, I teach my course on ethical technology through science fiction and through speculative fiction precisely because my my guiding premise is that speculative fiction and science fiction becomes a lens or a prism through which we start imagining. In fact, before any piece of technology or any action can happen, on some level, really has to be imaginable. And how we imagine really guides how we create. One of those elements of creation, I imagine, is activism itself. I think we live the stories we know, and that the stories we know guide us and prod us toward certain actions. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how you understand speculative fiction as an activist tool. How do you understand that symbiosis between speculative fiction and activism? I absolutely think that we need to be imagining different, new, better futures. Probably we need to be imagining really bad futures as well as a warning. And I think that there's a, a role for dystopia. I personally don't like to either read or write it, but I, I have all the respect for the people who do on both of those. But for me, you know, I think it's really important that we also imagine hopeful and just dramatically different futures. And that's really critical both to give us hope, to give us something to work for, to help us stretch our imagination, to understand that what we are living is not inevitable and that the path before us is not inevitable in one direction or another. And, you know, where possible to give us not exactly a roadmap, at least some kind of sense for directions that we want to go. So I do think it's really important. At the same time, you know, as I mentioned before, I do feel like stepping out to claim that it feels a little bit presumptuous. I think I, I would feel a little bit presumptuous to call myself an activist, maybe because I'm not out on the front lines. And I, I don't know if I'm right about that, but maybe it's because I have the background as a practitioner of someone who was in the field and working next to people in a very physical way. And writing does feel like a remove from that. And I really do hope that I can make my writing worthwhile in a way that makes a difference. But I don't want to claim it necessarily myself. I think that that has to come from other people. You, you talked about speculative fiction as imagining a better future, but I, I've also heard you talk about the fact that one of the misconceptions of science and speculative fiction, especially when these worlds include technology that seem to be a bit of a stretch from what we have now as our technological realities, one of those misconceptions is that speculative fiction is about the past. What I tell my students and what I've heard you say is that science fiction, speculative fiction, is never about the future. It's about the present, what we're experiencing right now, our fears and anxiety and desires of this moment. What's your take 
I do. I think that it is about the present or that to the extent that it's about the future, it's about a future that comes from and is irretrievably locked to our present. So I have a novel that I refer to by Stanislaw Lem, but it's a story in which there's a spacecraft that crash lands on a planet and get out of the spacecraft because it's upside down and, you know, they, they need to reach the exit. They pile up all the enormous star charts that they have in paper book. And it's such a great moment because as a speculative fiction writer, you're always aware that you can get all sorts of things right. And the rest of the book has some really sophisticated stuff about sort of swarm sort of mentality, the the collective mind thing. But you see, you can have stuff that stays really fresh and then you can have stuff that gets made completely obsolete by some development that you never imagined. So even though that book still tells me about a kind of future or kind of distant possibility, it's also very much locked to the time where it came from. And I think it's, it's impossible for us to fully get out of the time that we're in from those mundane things to the concerns that animate our, our books and our theories and our themes. So I, I do think that our books are largely about the present, but the future is also in the present, right? We're talking about where we go from here. We're talking about something that is a succession. So I do think that it's both of those. You know, when I talk about when I wrote my trilogy about the future, you know, it takes place six years in the future, but it was really, and I was very conscious as I was writing it, that it was about how to show people today certain absurdities in the system that we have. That said, it takes years to write a book. It takes at least a year more for the book to get published. So it's actually almost impossible to write about the present. It keeps moving. So it's writing about the future that we see from here. Yeah, you're talking about somebody who wrote a dissertation published in 2017 about international human rights and American leadership. So I understand that very completely. I wanted to pick up on your Sentinel Cycle series, which talks about something that is very of the moment, which is the state of our democracy, an urgent issue. I can't think of a more urgent issue for our moment. Could you talk about the series a bit? I think this series is set very significantly in the very near future, the next 50 years or so. First, why the near future rather than, say, a date further out? And why is democracy such a speculative focus for you? So when I was starting that book, I thought very much about exactly when or roughly when it should take place. And I kind of compromised on it being at that medium term, because on the one hand, you set it too close to today and you're obsolete almost immediately. And this has happened to a lot of writers I know. It's actually happened to me a little bit. There's a there's a point in the second book where I mention the capital of Kyrgyzstan and uh, they've changed the name. So I'm hoping they'll change it back in the next 50 years. But there's that. And then when I tried to think about farther into the future, 100 years, 200 years, but for what I wanted to tell, it was too far. I wanted to make sure that we could see the roots of today in this, because as I said, I was really very clear that the point of it was to, to get people to think about where we are today. So it had to be you know, close enough to have that connection, far enough away for things to have changed pretty radically, and also for me not to be too worried about what happens tomorrow. So it was just kind of that calculation of where can I put this to reflect today, but with enough difference. Democracy, actually, I think is a really rich and underutilized area, both for drama in plots. I mean, there's great drama in elections and these contests and these questions of how we collectively decide things. And also just as this area of thought and endeavor that we have barely scraped the surface of. I feel very strongly 
And particularly, I wrote an op-ed for, for the New York Times about the fact that the democracy that we practice in the United States and also in other democratic countries around the world is barely democratic. It's very diluted from what a pure democracy would be. And it also, in most cases, is not remotely taking advantage of the technology that we have today, social technology as well as digital technology that could allow us to do things very differently. So I think that there's all this interesting area of ways that we can innovate and social changes that can happen. And people don't write about it that much. And I think the reason people don't write about it that much is because we've got this idea that democracy is the happy ending. And then once you hit it, the story is over. And to me, it's sort of like the way that Elizabethan comedies would end with the wedding. Well, still, a lot of romance novels end with the wedding. And we know that weddings are a whole story, many, many, many stories within them. And now we have an entire literature that is about what happens after the wedding. And so, I, you know, I think it's a little bit like that. It's this idea that, oh, we have to get to democracy. And now we are very much in the moment where we need to realize that that is not the end of the story. That is the beginning. We have a long way to go to figure out the best ways to do democracy. And yeah, for me, I just found that a really fertile area to be thinking about and writing about. There's a lot of excitement. And also, you know, really coming up with those books. I mean, I was just super frustrated and angry about a lot of things that I saw happening in geopolitics and national politics as well. And that was a way for me to write about how it could be better. One of the dimensions of this speculative world at stake in its democracy is a massive bureaucracy for information management, one that controls all the data in the world and that holds the principle of liberating that information. In a world of fractured truths, of fake news, of truth bubbles, that world that we're living in right now before our election, our practice of democracy, the idea of a massive bureaucracy for information management seems almost utopian. For those who haven't read the series, spoiler alert, is this in fact a utopia? Does it turn out well? Or are we looking at something that's perhaps a little bit more dystopic? What what could go wrong? Definitely yes and no. I came up with this idea around 2011, 2012. And, you know, for those people who think that disinformation is new. I just want to remind everyone, not even to go back to like the political slogans written on the walls of Pompeii, but in 2004, there was a disinformation campaign that probably affected the outcome of the election and was so important at the time that it became verbed. There was a verb after the 2004 election, which was to swift boat someone. And this was a whole campaign that was used against John Kerry that was totally false. And then we forgot about it and it happened again and continues to happen in ever new and exciting ways. So, you know, again, I was feeling really frustrated with the disinformation. I was feeling really frustrated at realizing increasingly that I couldn't have discussions with people I disagreed with because we were getting our basic premises from totally different places. I used to really enjoy talking to people who, who disagreed with me because we could both, you know, I could learn a lot about their position and my position. But when you get to the point where you, you know, one person says the economy is doing great and one person says the economy is terrible and there's no way, even if you have numbers, you know, those numbers come from different sources and they may both be true, but we don't understand enough about them to, to really get to that conclusion. Um, so you just can't have the discussion anymore. So I was really frustrated by this. I just wanted there to be an adult in the room that we could depend on in terms of information and data that everyone could look to and be, say, well, yeah, okay. And 
as you say, it sounds really utopian from this, but as soon as I said it, as soon as I thought in my head, okay, there's going to be this one source of information. I was like, oh, that is a terrible, terrible idea and super dangerous. And so really the, the trilogy is me kind of wrestling through that and saying, right now we have a terrible information environment right now in the world. It's awful. It's, it's really, really bad, not just in the US, but pretty much anywhere to varying degrees. And there are reasons for that. I think that there are structural and economic reasons for that in terms of who has control of these companies that are producing the news in terms of the way that local news has been squeezed out. There are a lot of things that we could do to make it better. And I think there's also a limit to how good we can make it because people are always going to people. You know, it's really terrible right now. And so, as I said, you know, I was writing something that was very much about the present. I wanted to present the opposite and play it out a bit and see what are the ways in which this is better? What are the ways in which it's worse? And how can that help us think through this situation we're in that feels very stuck? Yeah, this is very interesting. I mean, some people who had the same good idea as you had ended up with terrible regimes like Stalinist communism, which is a central localized, univocal uh, set of information. Of course, on the other side of that, there's postmodernists who had the very celebratory idea around this kind of fragmented truth, where everything is kind of a mirror game or a reflection in a funhouse mirror of some sort of reality that's impossible to grasp at. And I think we're forever kind of, you know, living as postmodernists, trying to mediate between those kinds of distortions on the one hand that come from a fragmented truth where there is no real truth. And on the other hand, this mandated truth, which is itself a distortion where there is that kind of univocal truth. Do you see a happy medium? Exactly. I see maybe not a happy medium so much as a spectrum. I think there are things that if we can't call them absolute truth, we can be fairly certain for all practical intents and purposes that we can treat them as truth, right? And we can start with, I don't know, if you want to say that the earth is round and move on from there. I mean, I can say that, you know, the climate is changing because of human activity. And I think that that is true. But, you know, within that, there is a lot of uncertainty about how fast it's changing which kinds of human activity affect it more or less, all sorts of different elements to it, exactly why it is changing, what some of the impacts are. You know, there's a lot in there that we know to a greater or lesser extent that we're more or less sure of. And I think this is where we run into a problem because people have trouble with that spectrum, with saying that, you know, we know parts of this, but not all of it, or we are this much sure of it, but not completely. And there's a lot of stuff we still don't know, and there are ways we can get closer to it, but you know, we're never going to reach absolute truth. And so I think that it's in not just one or the other, but it's it's all of these things to different degrees on different questions. You know, I mean, when I was talking before the example about the economy going great or the economy going badly, that's an example of one of the many kinds of abstract information that we're supposed to deal with and make sense of in our lives. And I have a master's degree that had a pretty substantial economics component in it. And that still doesn't mean that I can look at a set of numbers and say that the economy is going well or the economy is going badly, right? And that's a 
mean I can get a set of numbers to begin with. And yet, again, you know, we're supposed to make decisions about this and we're told that we are voting based on this, at least partially. And that's a lot to take in. The fact that we're we're making decisions based partly on uncertainty, partly on abstractions, partly on statistics, partly on our sense of things from what we have personally experienced, which is anecdotal. It's really a combination of different kinds of knowledge that I think we're both aware of in different ways than people have been in the past and also, you know, kind of expected to deal with in ways that people in the past weren't, particularly people who didn't kind of sign up for it, you know, who weren't academics. And I think that that's tricky. It's really difficult for people. And and that's part of the reason why we're struggling so much with dealing with information now. Sometimes when I teach close reading to students, I really break down and I ask instead of saying close reading, I say slow reading. And part of the process of slow reading is really moving from the facts on the page, what's actually there on the page, to an analysis and then interpretation and really breaking that process that sometimes we do in a snap moment down into a very slow logical, self-conscious process so that we know what the facts actually are and we know what is an interpretation of the fact. I think, you know, I'm going to date this podcast by saying that this is the week of the American presidential debates. And in the American presidential debates, one of the things came out is that actually it's not just the interpretation of the facts, right? Like what's the cause of global warming, which might be an interpretive and analytic question, but actually the facts that we may not agree upon at this moment right now, that which has profound effects for our democracy. And my next question has to do with the relationship between our democracy and our technologies and the way we understand facts and the implications of that for the way that we compose our political life. The intersection of democracy and technology is particularly fraught at this moment. And in your writing, you imagine a world, I think, is so innovative and exciting and also terrifying, where constituents can, on a very local level, ascribe to a collective identity that's no longer bound by their geographical location, right? Our identities on some level in our contemporary reality are bound by our local space, you know, which county we're in, which state we're in, which nation we belong to. But as you imagine it, the collective identity is no longer bound by geographical location, but rather by this method where individuals can granularly on the local level pick their leaders and representatives and legal systems through the criteria of which information collective they want to belong to. And this is, of course, speculative fiction, but I think it captures something very real about our present, that our consensual realities and our belief systems are, in a sense, not governed at this moment by our national belonging. We don't all believe in the same facts because we're Americans, but rather by which information bubble we belong to, which is, again, not geographic necessarily, but, but more so based on what our social media feeds are, which magazines we are reading, which television we're watching, which Twitter feeds we subscribe to. And so what you're writing really captures the way in which an international, even a legal scale or things like uh, multinational corporations are already models of entities which forge belonging and legal status based on less on where they are or their, where their workers material exist, but rather through these fictions of, of shared identity that unite geographically disparate entities through what we might call a shared sense of identity, or as Yuval Noah Harari has called it, a shared sense of what story we belong to. Are we already living in the version of your speculative fiction? Yes, we definitely are. But I would also say we can look at it differently. We can flip it 
and say that, in fact, the whole idea of a nation state, which is the idea that there is a nation of people that are somehow united, that live within the geographic boundaries of a state, and that those things completely overlap in a Venn diagram of a circle. But that is a fiction that never really existed and has, for various reasons, gotten farther and farther from even being able to pretend it exists. It was something that came into fashion and caused all sorts of damage initially as uh, countries in Europe were trying to kick out anyone who didn't fit into their nation or cut off pieces of other countries to get their nation into their state and spent hundreds of years doing that and then went off to colonize places, draw arbitrary borders, and then also impose this idea nations should be the same. So lots of wars because of that and continued to have this discomfort with people who don't fit in. So people who did have identities that crossed nation state boundaries, whether those were religious identities, whether it was people who travel, whether it was linguistic identities that didn't quite fit. And then you have these other countries that like to think of themselves as made up of immigrants or like to think of themselves as having some you know, even some of these, the, the countries that started it out and, you know, let's take France, which took a, spent a lot of time kicking people out and so on, but now has this idea that, you know, anyone who's French is French and there's this kind of Frenchness. And so the, there's this stretch, you know, the United States has this idea that, that there's something that unifies us all. What exactly should that be? We can stretch, and I, I, I made this point in a piece I wrote last week for foreign policy, that we can say democracy. We all should believe in democracy. That could be, you know, a basic thing that we could all agree in. But to say that all these people forget the fact of coming from different places first, even if you took everyone born in the United States or growing up in the United States, the different parts of the United States are so different from each other. The idea that we would all be unified by some kind of intangible, indescribable, I don't know what, is just kind of silly. And and why we would want that also, I don't know. It goes back again to this idea that these nation states must have some kind of thing that will replace this also fictitious idea of a coherent ethnicity. And that doesn't make any sense. And even if it existed for a moment, people don't stay still and societies don't stay static. And so these things are all going to change. And so I would say, you know, what I write about and what we're experiencing is something that, that looks beyond that kind of silly and, and, and imposed idea of nation states and of people fitting in some geographic boundaries. People have never fit in geographic boundaries. People have never stayed still. Societies have never not changed. I mean, this is really interesting. This is Benedict Anderson territory who wrote, if you haven't read Benedict Anderson, Imagine Communities, this idea that we imagine ourselves belonging to a larger group of people who we've never met across ages of people who are not even alive at the same time that we were alive. And we're seeing these debates play out right now in our democracy in the United States. Of course, I think the most famous example right now is probably the example of Holocaust education in Germany, where German citizens of Turkish descent or Turkish immigrants are now being asked to follow a curriculum that includes a Holocaust education because so much of German identity is bound up with this particular incident as part of its shared national self-understanding. In the United States, we're going through something quite similar, which is a debate over a curriculum that includes, in California at least, a mandatory set of ethnic studies classes that talk about the state of California and the history of California. And in the United States, we're having conversations about you know, things like white privilege. Should those who have 
immigrated to the United States after slavery is over feel some burden or responsibility for the American past through that sense of what Anderson called shared community? Does this geographical sensibility unite us in some common story at this point? These are these are debates that we're having right now that I think are foundational to our understanding of our democracy. Yes, I agree. I think they are. And and I think there's a real problem with the way that they are being told because it goes through this lens of this kind of mystic belonging that isn't something we can point to. And yet we still have people saying things like real Americans. <laughs> and we still have this idea of unity and we can all come together as a people. And no Nobody really knows what that means. So yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot of problems with the language that we used to talk about this, the things that people are trying to achieve when they talk about this. You know, the questions that you raise are very interesting. They're these questions of shared stories, shared responsibilities. I think we have to add to that the economic impacts that occur and the, the sh because that's that's part of what the discussion is about. You know, when we talk about immigration and people coming in, we're talking about economic benefits that they get. And it, again, I, I don't know, I don't have a lot of patience for people thinking that somehow there's a birthright of some economic benefits that they should get because they were born in a place. I was actually thinking today, because I feel as well that it's really kind of a scam the way that countries work in terms of limiting immigration and acting like we should be so grateful and feel so privileged to have been born in such and such a place. Really, countries benefit from their citizens. Countries need their citizens. They need, at a minimum, their taxes, as well as their allegiance to even exist. They need their belief in that story. And so countries should really be wooing us to move to them and become their citizens. And I was thinking, because I was writing about democracy and doing a bit of the research on the, the idea that democracies don't have famines and democracies rarely wage war against other democracies and thinking about, you know, what we would demand of our countries if we had made a choice to move to them, if we would feel entitled to demand that they dealt with, for example, pandemics or famines or potential wars in different ways, as opposed to the current situation with most people feeling like, oh, I, I should be proud that I was born in this country and they're telling me I need to go to war for this country, then that's, that's the way it is. So really thinking about turning that perspective around. It's interesting. I've heard you talk about the fact that, at least in speculative fiction, there's no real utopia, but there's also no real dystopia. And maybe we need to do something similar in terms of, you know, breaking down that polarization and the categories in terms of how we think about the space that we're in right now, right? We can't idealize the space that we live in or the country that we live in, but we have to have a more complex relationship with it too, right? That it can't just be completely critical either. It has to be that kind of management thinking of it as a space that on the one hand is not dystopic or utopic. And on the other hand is also something that we can work on. We can change its dimensions as well. I use those terms, utopia and dystopia, but I realize that in this conversation, we haven't defined them here. And, and I know that you have some precise thoughts about those terms as key terms. So maybe we should back up a little bit. What in your view is a utopia and what is a dystopia? And why do you think speculative fiction, particularly about technology, explores those territories? I see utopia as a perfect system, a perfect state. And extrapolating from that, I see dystopia as really the absolute worst, the impossibly bad, which is why I actually take issue with a lot of the things that are called dystopia today. You know, a lot of the books that are called dystopian discussed as, as dystopia 
are in fact speculative depictions of stuff that already goes on today. So Margaret Atwood has said very explicitly about The Handmaid's Tale that everything in it has happened or is happening to women. I felt reading The Hunger Games, which I thought was a great book and and not so great a movie, that it was, to me, it was not so much a dystopia. It was a depiction of the way that a lot of regimes use children to control their parents or use children as soldiers. We know that this happened. So to me, calling that a dystopia is really a distancing mechanism that takes it away from us, that lets us ignore the extent to which those terrible things happen in the world now, today, to people, and say that it's just something from the future, from an impossible future, really. So I kind of wish we wouldn't call them that. Also, the reason that stories like The Hungry Games are so powerful is because they're not really about the dystopia as much as they are about the resistance and the rebellion. The Handmaid's Tale in 1984 are a bit different in that they're much less sanguine about the chances of those rebellions. So I, I think that, that it's a term that we should really be a bit more cautious how we throw around. On the other hand, as I said earlier, I do think that there's some value into looking into dark futures as well as as brighter ones. I personally prefer to both read and write on kind of the more hopeful side just because ugh, there's plenty of terrible stuff happening in the world already. But also, you know, I, I do think I do try to avoid both utopia and dystopia because I feel like when you've gotten to perfection or the opposite, there isn't that much story there. And I also don't really believe in a perfect system. And I think if it existed, it would be obsolete in two seconds, because as I said before, we change, we're always changing. So I think what's much more interesting to me is, on the one hand, the striving towards incrementally moving towards better, even if you know you can't get to perfect, and this figuring out of the nuance, you know, what are the things that work better and what are the things that are worse? And, you know, what are the ways that this can go wrong (laughs) is much more interesting territory. Speaking about what are the things that could go wrong, this is a podcast on ethics and technology. And I wonder if you could expand on something that I've heard you say about tech ethics and speculative fiction in the context of things going wrong. Now, in the context of tech practice, the process of rolling out new products to test what could go wrong involves things like beta testing or interviews with users to understand user product interface or market analysis. I've heard you say that while technologists can do this kind of testing to see what might go wrong or to see what works well, but mostly what can go wrong, there is also a massive need to explore the unintended consequences through narrative thinking, through speculative thinking, thinking about the impacts that tech will have or the ways that the tech product will change society or the way that society will change the product or the way the product is used. And and this really resonates deeply with me. I teach my class on ethical technology, as I said, through speculative and science fiction, because I think that the speculative and the fictional, what could be, allows a particular insight into this kind of really deeply important imaginary thinking. So you're preaching to the choir here, but maybe there are some folks out there who still need to be convinced. Can you help me make the case for science and speculative fiction as a tool for thinking ethically about technology? Absolutely. I think that what narrative can do really well, and it doesn't always, you know, it does have to be narrative that is rigorous in the ways we talked about earlier. But what narrative can do really well that is often missing from other kinds of predictions or testing is the human behavior element. I think that if we 
are paying attention, we have a narrative sense that will tell us when people aren't acting like people. At least that's the thing that bothers me the most, I think, when I'm watching a show or a movie or reading a book and one of the characters is not behaving like a person or is not behaving like the character that they've been up till then. It jars. It's because we're, we're so used to narratives and telling ourselves stories about the world and, and judging people's characters and expecting them to have a certain consistency there. And so... I think that narratives can be really, really useful in that way of trying to figure out how people will react and particularly, you know, how people will react weirdly. And again, not all narrative is good at this, but I think of someone like William Gibson, who is amazing at it. And his books are so full of throwaway lines about the way that people have twisted or appropriated or used differently or customized technology that doesn't exist yet, that is both so creative because the technology doesn't exist yet and so obvious once you read it. And it takes a certain kind of writer, it takes a certain kind of brain to do this. And I'm in awe of William Gibson and, and how he does. But that is the kind of information, and it is information, that you're not going to get through any other kind of testing or predictive or cost-benefit analysis or, or any of those things. A few weeks ago, I had somebody on the podcast to talk about tech and memory and the ethics of the archive. And in that episode, we talked about the famous Borges story, uh, Funus, His Memory, in which the main character cannot forget. This character remembers everything. And remembering everything for this character is a curse. We tend to think of infinite memory, especially when it comes to our computers, as a blessing or maybe a necessity. But for this character, the ability to remember everything is a burden because he remembers every single detail. And because he remembers every single detail, he cannot identify that which is important and instead treats all memories equally. And I think what, what Borges points out here is that forgetting is as much a process of meaning making as remembering, that the act of forgetting also allows us to have some memories become prominent and to guide us and to allow us to make meaning out of them. And as we were recording that episode, I, I thought about a short story that you've written. The title is The Black Box. Those, uh, The Black Box, These Memories Are Made to Last Forever in which the principal character, who's named Sumi, has a librarian installed in her brain as a child. And this librarian is this device that records all of her experiences, all of her memories. It's a fascinating piece about memory. And it's a fascinating piece about something that I think is happening right now in our culture, maybe precipitated by our technological devices where we see memory as infinite, where we see our devices as, in a sense, a prosthetic for our memory. And the current state of our technologies capture and categorize and store everything, or at least attempt to do so, or at least we think that they do, or that they should. How do you understand this archival drive? Another way of asking that question is the character Sumi's parents install this black box in her brain. What compels them to install that black box? What do we gain by having this capacity for total recall? And what might we lose? It's a story that's about, as you say, you know, our idea of technology is a prosthesis, that a prosthetic memory that will let us keep everything. And in a way, it's true. We have incredible capacity to keep digital records, photographs, videos, music, but it's also very 
much illusory, just how that can replace memory. And fundamentally, the idea that that will stop time in some way is is absolutely false. And so, you know, when you, when you ask about in, in the story why her parents install this, part of it is that they do it because all the other parents are doing it. But it's also that they feel how fast her childhood is passing them by. And there's this desperate need to hang on to it. And I think we all feel that, you know, we want to hang on to moments, even as we know it's impossible. And there's a certain talismanic effect, I think, to some of the technological recording that we do. I know that I have tons of photos in my computer and just having that many photos, the time that it would take to look at them, then we can something that either is you don't do it or it takes out from the time you would spend, you know, creating new experiences. So, you know, a lot of the short story, The Black Box, is about this sort of effort to keep everything and the question of what the value is of that. Absolutely. There's a thousand photos on my phone that I I'm fairly certain I'll never look at again. You know, there's, of course, the very famous caricature of the person who goes to the conference or the as you can see, my life doesn't have any fun in it. I think about concerts and I use the word conference <laughs> because I'm clearly doing more of the uh, latter than the former. But some people who like to have fun go to concerts. And instead of watching the concert, they hold up their phone so as to capture the concert to view at a later date. And I find this story so wonderfully disturbing and brilliant because it captures some of that at the end of the story. And I'm sorry for listeners, there's a spoiler ahead. Sumi dies only for us to discover that the librarian is totally unusable. The technology has become completely outdated. The story ends with this image of Suri's librarian, and I'm quoting the story here, displayed tastefully along with the others, but it is inert, a sliver of dead circuitry centered in a glass case. Some of the newer models survived the long wait and are played on endless loops in the experience rooms. But the older hardware of Sumi's librarian has long since been corrupted. It's a haunting image, one that I think speaks to exactly what we're talking about here, something that's very important in our current culture that's obsessed with archiving and keeping information. That even as we obsessively archive and keep that information, we don't necessarily think about why we keep that information in the first place. In other words, it's a collection of information that we value without much thought as to the utility of the information. As I read it, I was reminded of this very formative moment in my graduate research experience where I was in Steven Spielberg's Shoah Archives at USC. For those who don't know it, it's a very prestigious archive that was millions of dollars and millions of hours of time of investment to collect testimonies of the Holocaust and other genocides since the Holocaust. And it's this enormous archive with, as I said, these hundreds and thousands of testimonies and millions of hours of tape. And I go into this very prestigious archive in this very venerated building to look at these testimonies. And I'm ushered in, maneuvered through the security. And when I get to the archive room where the testimony is kept, it turns out that it's like this broom closet, this very small room, and the computers are not even hooked up. So here's this tremendous effort, millions of dollars and hours of time. And the collection of this data has taken enormous amounts of thought and enormous amounts of work. And yet there seemed to be very little thought about how it would be actually accessed and actually used. There's a parable, I think, in this. And I think about in our age of what this one philosopher called archival fever, 
what is this archival drive of our age about, if not the actual information we keep and venerate? What's your theory? So I think there's two parts of it. One is mortality, right? Which I kind of touched on a little bit in the previous answer. And there's another thing too, which is which is connected to that somewhat. But I think there's there's also a thing about individuality. I think that because we live for the moment in a society of plenty, really of surplus, people try to demonstrate who they are not by, for example, it's not anymore that you own more CDs than anyone else. It's which songs you choose to put into which playlists. For some people, obviously still designer names and so on in their clothes is very important. But for a lot of people, it's which clothes you choose to put together and which ones you choose to wear in, in certain ways. You know, and I think there's this sense of self in terms of these are my playlists. These, this is my Netflix queue. You know, this, these are the books that I have on my Kindle. These are the selection of this plethora of cultural riches that we have that I am saving for myself, not necessarily because I'm going to listen to all of them or watch all of them at any given moment, but because this is a constellation of things that express who I am. And there's kind of an assumption in there that other people would be interested in in knowing that or in figuring out from that who you are as an individual. But, you know, a lot of us uh, live very much in a way where we express ourselves more by our consumption of culture than creation of it. I mean, this is a very practical and I think very visceral element of that story's ending, which is that one of the reasons that Sumi's memory or librarian is inaccessible is simply that the technology has been outdated, right? This is something that those of us who lived through the 90s where you know, we moved from tapes and videotapes to CDs to things that probably are going to make our contemporary technology totally obsolete, really know very viscerally, which is that we have all of these things stored on apparatuses that have been so technologically outdated so quickly that we have information stored that we will never probably be able to access without returning to some of these technologies that are now very difficult to access and obsolete. Does the pace of our technological innovation or production have anything to do with this interest in maintaining information aside from the utility of what we retain? Are the technologies outdating the information faster than we collect it? Yeah, and and I think there's a whole extra step in there, which is happening now, which is that now we don't entirely own our collections. They're on Spotify or they're on Amazon with digital rights management or they're on Apple Play or whatever it is. And they can A, disappear and B, our preferences, which we think are so important to making us individuals are, are then being mined for big data by these companies to figure out what ads to show us and, and all our friends. This is a really another extremely important element of the story, which is that the librarian collects Sumi's memory with the intention that Sumi is very self-aware of, of that information of her perspective of her interiority being made public or somehow exterior to herself. I think of the story as a bit of a parable or maybe even a warning about what it happens to us as more and more of our interiority and more and more of ourselves and more of our private data becomes public data. Does the idea of our private selves being constantly on display, which is something that is happening more and more in our current culture through our technologies, change what it means to be human? 
Is there something deeply human about the interior of our minds being inaccessible to others, of us not having that life burn, of us not having to think about a life burn recording ourselves to display publicly later? Is there something that is deeply human about a mystery within us that cannot be accessed? Is there something about the nature of the human in that? And if so, are our technologies changing what it fundamentally means to be human? Perhaps, but I would also say that first of all, a lot of what we externalize in social media and so on is is very performative, and not only is it performative, but it's performative in much the same way that even writing in a diary was or continues to be. But but you know, was for the people who would write in a diary and expect somehow that it would someday be read, even if that wasn't immediate. So I think that there is that tension within us. And the technology definitely shifts how that works because there's a difference writing a diary that might someday be read by someone after you're dead, posting, you know, every five minutes about what's going on in your life and knowing that it's going to be read immediately. And also that it probably won't go away, you know, as writing in a diary and thinking, oh, maybe I'll burn this or not. So, so it's shifting. It is. But at the same time, you know, I, I do think there's that performative element and I think there is a certain legacy going on. I mean, there's a deeply interesting moment of recursion between Sumi's interiority and then the performance element of it. And that's the moment after she has a sexual encounter. And she's thinking about whether or not she can even reflect on that moment because the reflection might become public. The the example that came to my mind in the real world is the Fitbit, which we wear around our, our wrist and the Fitbit monitors our information. But then For those who have worn a Fitbit, as you know, you start to change and modify your behavior because you're performing so that the record that your Fitbit has is one of a more aspirational sensibility. And then, of course, you know, you you become your daily actions become the performance. So there's that like really interesting recursion or interpenetration between the performative and the, the intimate that I think these technologies invite. I don't want to end without addressing this particular moment that we're in right now, especially as I have you here as someone who's written extensively about information and democracy, obviously relevant to our moment right now, just as we are on the cusp of the election. In the next month, we'll be practicing democracy here in the United States, electing a, portraying my bias here, hopefully new leader. So much of what is on the ballot right now feels like our democracy, and so much of the results of that election will emerge out of an information economy. How should we think about this moment? First of all, I think we need to keep clear that it's not just a moment. It's going to feel like that in the election, although although this election perhaps less than others, because there's so much early voting, there's so much voting by mail, which feels very different from the sense of going in on a single day. So perhaps different, but you know, even so, I think we need to keep in mind that it took quite a lot to get us to this point. (laughs) And that whatever happens afterwards is going to be an ongoing story for a while. So, you know, it feels like a lot to say, this is one moment. And and I think it's really important to consider that there were a lot of choices that led up to this. There was a lot of buildup. There were a lot of places where we could have done things differently. And the same afterwards. It is quite a moment. I think we really need to be returning very rigorously to what democracy means, what we want out of it, how we have failed democracy, and the ways that we can do it better. And we need to keep thinking beyond these two people, because this man or that man, this is an important choice, right? But it's also in some ways 
spurious, right? Because to think that we have narrowed down to these two people as the, the two best possible leaders of the country is, is, is kind of a ridiculous thought. And so we need to keep, you know, not always getting stuck in this, these two people or even these two parties, but take the step back and think, what is the process that got us here? What could we change in that process to have a different outcome that would be better? And anytime we're going to think about better, we need to ask ourselves what better means. And I think in the case of democracy, we haven't as a country. You know, I I think that our democracies need to be, and I say that plural because I think the United States is not the only country that is struggling with this, um, but our democracies, we need to think about them as being more accountable. We need to think about them as being more broad in their engagement and participation. We need to think about them as being more transparent and ideally, I think a lot more direct. So we have a long way to go to make democracy into what it could be. And I hope we can realize that and get on with it. I've heard you talk elsewhere about optimism. There's a lot of doomsayers right now about the corruption of our technology, about our democracy, about the corruption of our democracy by technology. Are you optimistic about where we can go from here? Should we be optimistic? I think that we we kind of have to be optimistic because there's not much point in being pessimistic. The only thing we can do is keep trying to make it better. And to keep working to make it better, we need to believe that it can be better and that we're capable of doing that. And I really do think we are because, I mean, it's awful as this moment feels right now. And it really does. And gosh, there have been some really terrible conjugations of people doing terrible things uh, to get us here. But as awful as it feels, you know, we have come a very long way from when the country was founded and what democracy looked like at that point. And we need to keep that in mind. Even in the past 20, 30 years, we can see that there have been a lot of steps taken, some in the wrong direction, but quite a few in the right one. And so we need to keep in mind that that is a trend, that the arc is spending, it's very long and it's bending very slowly. But if we look with the long view, it does seem to be bending in the right direction. I would build on that just to say that, you know, there's a, there's a historian whose name is Carlo Ginsberg. And... They say that the uh, lowest form of journalism is prediction and the lowest form of historical scholarship is prognostication. Oh, but one thing he said, you know, really just occurred to me in what you were saying, which is he said that some people think that history unfolds in a similar manner to the weather, which means that if you step outside and it's raining, what you should do is grab an umbrella. And he said, that's not how it works. It's not like the weather. You can choose whether or not it's going to rain, to use that metaphor in history as it unfolds. You can decide the weather. And I think that what you're saying here about optimism is important because unless we're guided by a principled and determined sense of optimism, a sense that we can change the weather, so to speak, unless we do that, we're not going to try. So that optimism is important, I think, as an, as an outlook, as a principled outlook that galvanizes us towards certain action. And the sense that, you know, if we can use in the best sense of the word our speculative fictions about what could be in a productive, generative, fruitful way, then 
then perhaps, you know, that kind of optimism is determinative in terms of how our future unfolds. Exactly. That's very much how I feel about speculative fiction as well. We need to be able to imagine that there are other things and we need to understand that we contribute to them. Thank you very much, Martha. I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you. It's been a great conversation.